Hello everyone, I hope you are well. I'm Carlos Carnicero Uravallen and I want to welcome you all to Future is Blue, a series of podcasts bringing together top experts from academia and think tanks to discuss the most pressing European economic and policy challenges of today. This is a Funkas Europe initiative and we hope we can bring new ideas for a more inspiring debate about Europe. Hello everyone, today we're joined by Jan Eikaut, who's uh, ICREA Research Professor of Economics at UPF in Barcelona. And he has teaching and research interest in macroeconomics with a special emphasis on the labor market. So thank you for joining us, Professor. It's my pleasure. Uh, today we're, we're here to, to cover again inflation because it's such a hot topic and it's so relevant for so concerning for policymakers and for citizens and businesses that we, we are interested to learn about your views on this topic. So perhaps we could start uh, this conversation. Maybe you can give us uh, your opinion about the latest tendencies. We, I mean, we some days ago, we, we learned that inflation accelerated to 7% in April uh, compared to 6.9% uh, the month before. And um, so here we are. I mean, this is this is a problem that is uh, absolutely not solved yet. So perhaps we could start this conversation if you give us your your key thoughts on on how is inflation affecting the eurozone these days. So inflation, well, in the eurozone and in the whole world in the last two years has been fascinating for economies, maybe worrisome for policymakers, but uh, it's been quite unusual also because it's a little bit uh, different from the type of inflation that we've seen in the past and of course there's been a lot of debate as to what has uh, caused inflation and also i think from a policy point of view how stubborn it is and how hard it is to um, you know to to reduce uh, inflation to the two percent target that the central banks or most of the central banks have now there's a number of issues that uh, are going on at the same time. Given how fast it changes, there's one issue that I've been contributing to the debate a little bit is, is the measurement. What is inflation? By that I mean inflation is, as it changes fast, is still reported as the average inflation over the last 12 months. And what does that mean? Well, that means that we measure when we announce today's inflation as saying uh, it's 7%. That means that this is the average price change over the last 12 months. Why methodology is so relevant to understand inflation? So, for example, consider the case that we have seen in 2022, where inflation in January was around 12% and in December it was 1%. Now, suppose in a very hypothetical case where inflation really steadily declines in a predictable way, from 12% to 11% in February to 10% in March and so on until 1% in December. Then the announced inflation in December would be that the number is 6.5%. It's basically the average of all these inflation numbers over the years, between 12 and, uh, over the months, sorry, between 12 and 1%. And now that's a distorted view because you really get the information from inflation that happened many months ago, and we know that the inflation at that point is a lot lower. 
And so one of the really important things at that point is, is to realize that when inflation is either on the decline or equivalently on the rise, uh, uh, where we would have the opposite, then it's important to really look more at what happens in the recent periods. And you mentioned in the beginning that inflation is now kind of jumping up. And uh, uh, so basically, I think when inflation is changing, it's important to give more weight to the last periods. And there's ways in which to do it. And, 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 and one way is to use a measure that's called instantaneous inflation, which is, is putting more weight on recent months than on earlier months. You cannot just quote the last month because in reality there's also a little bit of noise, there's kind of randomness in the inflation, there's seasonality. So you have to somehow, you know, put uh, uh, also some weight on the past because otherwise, you know, when for random reasons inflation increases or de decreases, you don't want to take that headline number uh, uh, out and say, you know, we have for random reasons, we would have a, a very volatile uh, measurement of inflation. But if we only take the last 12 months, we miss really out on what's happening in terms of uh, uh, more steady trends as in the examples that I, I gave. So that's one issue in terms of understanding inflation in a, in a changing environment. Uh, of course, this is not an issue when we were uh, between the, let's say, late 90s and 2021, uh, and, and when inflation was only, always very steady and, and wasn't changing much. Then whether you use the 12-month average or if you want the five-year average, it wouldn't make much of a difference. But when you're in times like this one, these, uh, these changes are, are actually quite substantial. How is all this affecting policymakers? I think they're important for policy. Why are they important for policy? Because policymakers really want to manage the expectations of inflation because we know that people's expectations of inflation and people, I mean, workers, firms, policymakers, you know, anyone who makes decision based on what they think inflation is going to be, really need to have precise expectations. And if, if, if the policymaker, the central banks, are announcing that inflation is the inflation from six months ago or from 12 months ago, then people's you know, information is delayed and therefore their information formation or their expectation formation rather is going to be, well, also be delayed. And I think it's important for, for policymakers to, to take that, that uh, into account and to really put more weight on, on, on more recent outcomes. So that, that's one aspect in terms of the measurement. Then there's a second aspect, and this has been up for debate for the last, well, I would say year and a half now, since we've been paying much closer attention to what's behind this rise of inflation. And, and here's an interesting point. We see in the data that in the last year and a half, profits have risen substantially. And then people have been asking or entering into the debate, what is the reason why there's such a high inflation? Is it because, you know, the traditional uh, wage inflation spiral that if wages go up, prices go up, but if prices go up, wages go up and so on, that either through, again, people's expectations or through, you know, sectoral negotiations about wage levels and things like that, that there's this relationship, this link between wages and, and, and prices. But we see that wages have risen in most countries much less than what uh, prices have done. So basically the rise in prices has been higher than the rise in, in wages. So the wage inflation has been lower than that of the price inflation, casting some doubt on this wage price spiral. But at the same time, we see that profits have been high. And profits being high, then we get this uh, 
notion that a lot of people uh, throw in and they say, well, there's, there's, it's not inflation, it's greedflation. It's the fact that firms are able to charge higher prices just because they get higher profits. It's not that you know, they're forced to set higher prices for whatever you know, reason through higher wages that they have to pay to their workers in order to make ends meet or to make uh, sure they don't, they don't make losses, firms increase prices. No, no, they, they're, they're setting prices that are higher because they get higher profits. And we see some of that, but there's one important aspect that these higher profits are in this period of higher inflation occurring not just you know, because firms are dominant or have market power, because we've seen rising profits in many sectors that are actually fairly competitive. Uh, perhaps you could give us an example of businesses taking advantage of the current circumstances to raise prices? I like to use the example of the um, uh, uh, face masks in 2020. In March 2020, you know, the demand for face masks just jumped up and the price of a face mask as a result, because of course supply didn't immediately adjust, the uh, the price of a face mask went from, from three or five uh, uh, euro cents to uh, up to a euro and a half per face mask. Now, if you look at that and you say, wow, this is a huge rise, but this is basically a disequilibrium situation in where the the, 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 the supply cannot keep up with the demand. And we've not just seen this in face masks during the, the lockdown. We've seen this with all kind of supply distortions. We've seen it with energy prices. We've seen it with a lot of goods that were in shortage for different reasons. Now, and that, of course, when a firm is selling a good and it can sell it at a higher price, it will do that and it will get them higher profits okay there's a direct link between basically well the price that you can charge if there's shortages and the profits that you make and we've seen that profits for most firms have gone up in that period but that's a long step away from linking this to the fact that profits are higher and that inflation is there because firms have market power are dominant in their markets and there's this kind of a long-term trend that we've observed is that market power has increased. But I want to stress that this is not necessarily behind the rise of inflation. And the reason is, as in the face mask example, is that face mask is a very competitive market. Okay, The reason why prices went up and why there was a shortage because this was temporary. If you see prices go up because firms have market power and are dominant, this is a permanent situation. Okay, if, uh, you know, uh, Google or Facebook or Amazon charge prices that give them a higher margin because they are dominant in the long run in their markets. The face mask market was giving high profits for about two or three months. In fact, you know, in March 2020, the price went up to one euro fifty per face mask. A lot of firms, in fact, invested. I have a friend who is in the business of textiles for for medical appliances and and uh, what he did was buy machines to produce face masks he wasn't producing face masks before of course he saw that there was enormous demand and high prices for these goods and so he invested in these machines by april he had them flown in actually from abroad it was very expensive to make this investment he made made a 900,000 euro investment and by april he was producing face masks he was selling them at a euro 50 but by July, other people had done this. The supply had adjusted and the price of face masks was back to five euro cent. 
And that's the big difference. This is an example of where there's been a short-term shortage, a, a kind of a disequilibrium between supply and demand, leading to high prices, but for a very short period of time. Well, well let me stop you there one second. Uh, you gave a very good example, but but what kind of shocks are we having more lately that are affecting prices in such a way? I mean, I think it's a combination of these long-term distortions that are still kind of lingering, that they're, they're not disappearing immediately. So the whole distortion to the transportation system, the whole issue with shortage of ships, some of these markets have kind of gone back, but, but not completely. But we see, for example, in the second-hand market for cars that prices are still very high, okay, that there's still, you know, these markets that have been distorted, the, they don't immediately get back to equilibrium. The supply doesn't equate demand very fast. And this, this, so, so some of these dis distortions still uh, linger. But secondly, and very importantly, there's also the issue that people's expectations have changed. And people are now, you know, charging high prices because they expect there to be higher wages and people are demanding higher wages because they're expecting to have higher prices. And that is the big challenge for the policymaker, for the central bank, because they have to find a way to manage expectations, which is their main goal. And I think that's the reason at the moment, the main reason why we see still stubbornly high inflation. And, and, and that's, this is the hard uh, uh, kind of policy lever that, that uh, policymakers have to try to lift and, 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 and to see whether they can affect those, those expectations. And to come back to the point I made earlier, it's, it's important to, to report and to communicate the evolution of inflation as it is rather than with a six months delay, because you know, the delay means that it makes it much harder to affect those uh, expectations. One question, uh, I, I was watching your TED talk before and you said the system is broken, the system that is broken is the market economy. There is a handful of firms that are large that are making enormous profits because they don't face competition. So if there were more players that would force them to lower their prices. So I need to ask you, how do you incentivize more competition if you are a policymaker today? Well, I mean, first of all, this is, uh, uh, let me put it, it's not necessarily going to be the solution to inflation, but uh, it definitely is going to lower prices of some goods and in some markets. Now to foster competition is, I think, going through a pro-competitive uh, uh, kind of policy. And, and what we see is that the current antitrust policies are really, you know, not reaching the type of monopolistic and dominance positions that firms have in the sense that, you know, technological change has, has had such an impact that, you know, firms like Meta have 85% of the advertising revenue in their market in the social uh, networks market. Uh, there's virtual monopolies in online um, platforms like eBay. There's a duopoly in the market for uh, uh, applications that is uh, Apple, the App Store and Google Play. So we see a lot of markets that have arisen because of technological change in such a way that there's really either a monopoly or a duopoly with a strong 
influence of the dominant players on the price and therefore on their, their profits. So to do something about it is to do something about these kind of monopoly positions. Now, if, as in these examples that I've given, the reason why they have this monopoly position is because there are what we call network externalities. That is, I want to be in a social network that's large because the larger it is, the more valuable it is to me. I don't want to be on a social network where no one is. I want to find all my friends and the people that I'm looking for. Given that, or in other circumstances, maybe more like an Amazon, I want really large scale economies because if I want to make and deliver all these goods at a low price, the way I can do this, I can achieve this, is I have really a lot of scale. I can, I can you know, uh, sell a high volume and that makes it uh, cheap. If we have these scale economies and these network externalities in an economy, in a modern economy, which is, by the way, an economy that's also having a global market, it's not just that I have scale within my market, I have scale in, in a market that's now global, that's the world. If I change my app, my Facebook app, I reach billions of people uh, immediately. If I want to, you know, do something about this situation, this this technological change that has led to this advantage for really a monopolist operating, one thing we can do is to, at the same time, we want to maintain the scale of this economy. We want to maintain this large network if you want, but we want to foster competition on this network. And how can we do that? Well, we can try to have competitors operating on this same network. There's a notion that's called interoperability, which is a, a way to you know, separate the network from the operators. And in a traditional industry like railway transportation, we see this now that you know, typically the rail lines are operated by one network operator and then there's competition by different competitors. For example, in Spain, the uh, fast train lines are now seeing operators from different countries competing with the local formerly uh, mon monopolists. Similar ways in uh, fostering competition can be done on other networks, networks such as social networks, networks as platforms uh, or businesses with high entry cost and any of these networks we can imagine you have an, a, a kind of a platform uh, for uh, you know taxis in a sense like an uber or a lyft where different competitors can have access to this platform and once different competitors can have access to this platform then you're going to see a, a, an effect on pricing and this effect on pricing is going to basically lead to more competition of course and it's going to be better for the customers Thank you. Uh, I, th I think we're coming to an end. But before we um, we close, I, it would be great if you could give us a forecast of how do you think we're gonna end this 2023 in the eurozone in terms of inflation? Do you see a, a tendency going down closer to the ECB target? My personal. Uh, uh, view is that there's going to be a lot of volatility. We're going to see more ups and downs. I see a downward trend. By the end of 2023, I think we will get closer to the inflation target. Maybe not exactly at the inflation target, but closer. That is one thing. The second thing is that we have to also take into account that there's a high probability we will have a recession in the, ne in the next 12 months. And if there's a recession, then things will change. And of course, inflation will come down once the recession hits for different reasons. 
it will, you know, there will be inflation. Be, sorry, the inflation will come down because you know firms are going to be desperate to get rid of certain things that they've already produced, and we're going to have basically the opposite of what we had when there was uh, supply chain distortions in the sense that there's going to be excess of uh, certain goods that firms are going to want to get rid of and this is going to lead to to lower prices so so i think the uncertainty is high there's uncertainty about what whether or not there will be a recession a global recession that will be i think because you know now markets are so integrated that uh, a recession is no longer strictly local the timing may be slightly different but ultimately the recession will be global and then depending on whether the recession hits, this is obviously going to affect inflation. If there's no recession, of course, it's going to take a little bit longer before prices come down. But I would say that even without the recession, prices will start to come down. Although they will be volatile, we'll see months where there is still announced increases in prices, uh, sorry, in, 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 in inflation. Uh, but at the same time, we will also see that you know, there will be a long-term trend towards the decline. I need to ask you, are, are, just one last question. Are, is this recession, do you think, is likely going to happen largely due to central banks rising interest rates quite radically, to, trying to control inflation? Mm, I mean, it, it, it definitely contributes to it. But, you know, as recessions, we wish we understood them much better than uh, uh, we do as economists. I mean, I, I think that very often, you know, the central bank's response is a response to certain conditions that are already giving rise to recession. You know, it's, it's um, so central banks have an impact on it, but it, I, I would be cautious to say that the central bank is causing the recession. In the end, a lot of what central banks are trying to do is, is get these, what they call soft landings, is trying to avoid precisely that uh, there is a, a recession as a result of their policy impact. Um, so, so I would be, do, do central banks affect uh, the outcomes they do, but, but saying that they cause the recession, I, I, I would be more cautious on that. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks, thanks a lot for your time, Professor. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining. This was all for now. We will come back soon with more exciting speakers on Europe's economic and policy-related key debates. Future is Blue is a Funcas Europe initiative. I'm Carlos Carnicero Ravallen, and if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to recommend it to others and share it on social media. Thank you all, and stay well.